Our text tonight is taken from Matthew, the fifth chapter. If you want to turn there and follow along, Matthew, the fifth chapter. We'll be studying and considering what Jesus taught on the subject of blessedness or happiness. If you remember, I recently completed a series of studies on the book of Philippians with a special focus, emphasis on the subject of joy. And as we explored the various aspects of joy presented and taught throughout the book of Philippians, we tried to correlate each one with at least one of the Beatitudes. And so we want to explore these in greater detail tonight. I find it interesting, Jesus begins what's considered the greatest sermon of all time with the Beatitudes, with teaching on the keys to blessedness and happiness. And I believe this teaching is the platform, the springboard for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And so we want to begin with a reading from Matthew, the fifth chapter. We'll begin reading in verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And the key word jumps off the page over and over nine times, blessed. The Greek uh, makarios is often also translated happy, uh, supreme Happiness includes the idea of joy, prosperity, and contentment. And each beatitude has a description of disposition, an attitude, a spirit. The beatitude's a description of disposition, and then a declaration of blessing, a promise. God wants to bless you, but we have to have the attitudes and the actions that can be blessed by God. You want God to bless your home, your work, your worship, your finances, your family, your children, your marriage? This is how. This is why this passage is so wonderful and so critical. This passage gives us the blueprint, the path, the characteristics, the qualities, the keys to happiness. And they're paradoxical. Seemingly absurd and self-contradictory statements that when further investigated and tested, turn out to be true, turn out to be real and make sense. Things that seem to oppose each other. The exact opposite place you would think to look for happiness is where you're going to find it. World can't comprehend that. The world will not accept these qualities, these characteristics, but those who have investigated further, those who have closely examined and tested have proven 
these to be the most real and true things they've experienced in their life. And so number one, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's not surprising this is first on the list when you consider Jesus' emphasis on humility and faith and trust and dependence versus self-righteousness and self-reliance, unless you become like a little child, humble, honest, meek, dependent, you will not see the kingdom of God. Of such is the kingdom. Think about who was coming to Jesus. Think about who was in the crowd. We read of his disciples, but if we back up into the previous chapter in Matthew chapter 4, the verses leading into the Beatitudes, into the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus went about teaching preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness, all kinds of disease. Then his fame went throughout. And who came to Jesus? Who was brought to Jesus? The sick, the afflicted, the diseased, the tormented, those who needed healing. The only people who come to Jesus are those who admit and recognize they are sick, They are crippled, they are impoverished, they are bankrupt. Versus the self-righteous Pharisee, except your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees. Matthew 5, verse 20. Who refuse to admit, who refuse to accept, and refuse to enter. And so here's the paradox. You have to be helpless to not be hopeless. You have to be poor to become rich. Instead of removing the helplessness, instead of removing the poverty, Jesus makes this part of the path to heaven. In a world that worships the God of self-reliance cannot accept that. Rejects, blessed are the poor in spirit. So you want to be blessed? Rely on God. Depend on God. Rely on God's wisdom for your family, your finances, your marriage, your children, your work, your worship. And if you aren't studying and praying every day, you aren't relying on the wisdom of God. You're relying on the wisdom of something else because that's where the wisdom of God is contained. That's where the wisdom of God is revealed. Rely on God's wisdom. Rely on God's timing. If you want an example of what happens whenever we don't wait on the Lord, the way that causes complications and turbulence in our life, go look at the example of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. When we get impatient, don't wait on the Lord and follow the plan and will of God for us in our lives. God's wisdom, rely on God's timing, and rely on God's resources. We're going to see that in Matthew chapter 6. If you aren't relying on God's resources, if you're investing somewhere else, you're investing in things that rot, rust, and don't last. They're going to be taken away. You're insecure, if that's where your security is. You're insecure, and insecure people are not happy. Not blessed are everyone. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those whose poverty causes them to mourn, who feel and admit and mourn their unworthiness, their emptiness, their bankruptcy, their helplessness, and as a result are drawn to the mercy and grace of God to receive a blessing. Again, the paradox. <laughs> you want to be happy, you got to be sad. What do we mourn? What are we sad about? Loss, suffering, 
And those are things that we mourn, not just at funerals. We have an opportunity and reasons to mourn, a time to mourn every day because we live in a broken and lost world. And if you aren't doing that, if you're never mourning, you're either out of touch with reality or out of touch with people. Blessed are those who mourn. The ultimate cause of all the mourning, the suffering, the loss is sin. We mourn sin. And mourning sin will lead to a blessed life. Mourning sin, mourning loss, mourning sorrow and grief is critical to physical, emotional, mental, spiritual well-being. The Bible bears that out. Research bears that out. If we don't mourn and grieve properly or we rush the time to mourn, maybe we've experienced, maybe we've seen other people experience, when that happens, we often get stuck. Blessed are those who mourn. You know, there are some things in life that we don't get over, we get through. How? Let God help and comfort you. Psalm 34 and verse 18, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. The contrition, the brokenheartedness leads to the nearness of the Lord. That's the blessing. Let God comfort you. Let God bless you and let God comfort you through his family. Romans 12, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. As the saying goes, if you share joy, it's doubled. If you share sorrow, it's halved. And understand and appreciate the paradox. There is no comfort. One of the greatest blessings you'll experience in life is the comfort and grace and mercy of God and God's family. There is no comfort. There is no grace without reasons to need comfort and grace. And those things that make us mourn are meant to lead us to the comfort and ultimately the blessing and happiness of God. God can bless us through mourning by using it to make us grow, using it to make us better. The Bible has a lot to say about that. Using it to equip us to find comfort in comforting others distractions from our own problems by helping others with their problems, the joy and humble service. Who better to help someone who's going through than someone who's gone through? And God can bless us through mourning by using it to draw us closer to Him, using it to draw us into His comfort. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Notice He didn't say, blessed are the weak. Meekness is not weakness. In fact, the word literally means the exact opposite of that. The word means strength under control. The concept is literally a wild stallion that's been tamed, that's been brought under control, essentially horsepower fit for the master's use. And I think Jesus here, when he says, they shall inherit the earth, is alluding to Psalm 37. Psalm 37, if you want to turn there, Notice verses 9 and 11 both say, those that wait on the Lord, they will inherit the earth. They will inherit the earth. That's the exact language, the exact phrase Jesus used. They shall inherit the earth. Who? Who are the meek that are going to inherit the earth? Those who wait on the Lord. Those who patiently endure. How do they do that? Verse 5, they commit, they entrust. That's a banking term. They invest Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. And what's the result? Verse 7, rest in the Lord, wait patiently for Him, do not fret. 
God is in control. I've entrusted it to Him. Therefore, I can be free of envy, frenzy, and anxiety. That's what meek people do. Notice what James taught on the subject in James chapter 1. The meek are those who are swift to hear. They are quick to listen, quick to learn. He goes on to say later, the wisdom of God that comes from above is first pure, then uh, reasonable, open to reason. He talks about the meekness of wisdom because those two things are inseparable. Same characteristics. Meek people are wise, wise people are meek. And what do meek people do? They're swift to hear, they're quick to learn, quick to listen, quick to, to grow in the blessings that come when we're quick to listen and learn. Slow to speak, slow to wrath, slow to anger, receiving with meekness the implanted word. So is our life stressful, turbulent, depressing because we aren't being meek and gentle? Because if I'm meek and gentle, the result of that is love, joy, peace, rest. Meekness blesses our lives in so many ways. Proverbs talks about how it diffuses and de-escalates conflict. Could you be happier with less conflict in your life? with mechanisms for de-escalating conflict in your life. It makes you more attractive. It makes you more persuasive. The how to win friends and influence people concept. It's a witness. It communicates love and concern, whether that's at the restaurant, at home, at church, at work, in the world. One of the best ways you can improve any relationship, key to effective parenting, you wanna improve your marriage, be more gentle. Be more meek. The best leaders are meek. Jesus, the greatest leader of all time, described himself as meek and lowly in heart. Perhaps the second greatest leader of all time, Moses. Numbers chapter 12, we read an instance where his leadership was being opposed by his own family members. And after the opposition to his leadership... We read later of the vindication of God, the vengeance of God, and in between that, right when you would expect Moses to get angry, to get defensive, to retaliate, we're told he's the meekest man on the face of the earth. Because that's what meek people do. They give their anxieties, their problems, their vengeance to God, and they entrust it to Him, and they trust that God will work it out to His glory and our eternal good. And what of the promise? They shall inherit the earth. What does that mean? You know, again, it's a paradox. It seems to me that those inheriting and conquering the earth are those who are doing so at the expense of everybody else, on the backs of everybody else. Without weapons and armies, Jesus conquered more souls, more territory than anyone in human history. And you will not enjoy this life fully relationships fully, you can't buy admiration, love, respect. You will not enjoy this life fully without being benevolent, without being meek and humble and kind. And above that, you won't inherit and enjoy the next life without being humble and kind. And so in the promise, he's given us motivation to endure patiently in spite of the tendency, the desire to retaliate. You don't need to retaliate. You don't need to boast. You don't need to brag. You don't need to one-up everyone else because 
God has already promised and given us everything. And so I see in this list two groups of four. The first three lead to righteousness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. The second three lead to righteousness again. Each group of four ends with righteousness. The first three qualities and characteristics describe emptiness, poverty, loss, meekness. And it's that emptiness that causes us to hunger and thirst to be filled with righteousness. We have to hunger and thirst for righteousness to have a full, filled life. So often as Solomon essentially described in the book of Ecclesiastes, we are miserable with full stomachs. So again, the paradox is you have to be empty, you have to be hungry to be full. How do I cultivate a spiritual appetite? How do I do that? Like, well, I need to love God more. I need to love the word more. And that's true, but I think if we want to cultivate the appetite, it starts somewhere else. I submit to you that it starts with first appreciating God's love for you. Who loveth most? Luke 7, Jesus said, the one who understood they were forgiven most. Psalm 63, O Lord, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul pants and longs after you. Dry and thirsty land. Why? Because your steadfast love is better than life. Start with God's love for you and it will increase your love and desire for Him. Quit getting fat and full on junk, on appetizers, on the chips and salsa, on money, recreation, pleasure, which prevent us from being hungry for God and for God's kingdom. So then I think about a lot, a homework assignment for all of us. What are the things in our life that are preventing us, maybe sinful, maybe not sinful in moderation, what are the things in your life, the activities in your life that are preventing you from being hungry and thirsty for God and righteousness and for his kingdom? What do I need to eliminate? What do I need to moderate in my life? Or else I will forfeit supreme and eternal happiness. If you're seeking fool's gold, you will not find the pearl of great price. And so Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, continuing in this sermon, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or God and money. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And so essentially he gives us a blueprint here. You got to invest. The more you invest, the more it means to you. And we, we experience that in relationships, in our marriage, with our children, and with projects, working on a car, your home. The more you invest time, money, energy, sweat equity, the more it means to you. The more attached you get, the more sentimental you get. That's how you cultivate this desire and surround yourself with other addicts. You want to be addicted 
to politics, surround yourself with people who are consumed with politics. You want to be addicted to drugs and recreation and pleasure and pornography? Surround yourself with people who are addicted to those things. You want to be addicted to loving God with all your being and loving your neighbor as yourself? Surround yourself with people who are addicted to the ministry. And so the next three activities, first three led emptiness, qualities of emptiness that lead to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And what's the result? We're going to be filled with righteousness. And what's righteousness? Jesus here essentially defines righteousness, mercy, purity, peacemaking. And we see that as he goes on to say, your righteousness has to exceed the Pharisees. What do we see throughout the Sermon on the Mount? Mercy, purity, peacemaking. And how does that hunger and thirst for those things bless us? Well, I think it's as obvious as any of these qualities and promises. It causes us to seek to be full. You won't, be hung, you won't eat until you recognize you're hungry. You won't seek to be full until you realize and admit that you're running on empty. And that causes and motivates us to seek the one who can truly fill. So blessed are the merciful. And that's a big deal to God. We go on to read in verses 38 through 42. Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And he goes, I want to say, uh, I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. He goes on in the sermon in chapter 6 in the model prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Why? Verse 14, for if, and that's a conditional word, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I desire mercy rather than sacrifice. What does the Lord require of you? To do justly, to walk humbly, and to love mercy. Because I need mercy in my past, my present, my future. I'm going to extend the same. God gave me what I needed, not what I deserved. And Jesus connects, he correlates your happiness, your blessedness with our appreciation and application of that concept. Suppress the tendency to get even and get back. You want to feel good in the short term and bad in the long term? Hit back. Want to feel bad in the short term and good in the long term? Turn the other cheek. Show mercy to those in need. Show mercy to those who are marginalized. Show mercy, not just forgiveness, show mercy to those who are less fortunate, who are hurting, who are lonely, who are wrong, who have wronged, and who are lost. And you will have a blessed life blessing other people. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. And that word purity, the concept is unmixed. Unmixed motives. The why matters. Jesus emphasized that throughout his teaching, certainly in the Sermon on the Mount, doing the right things for the right reasons. That'll bless you. 
why we pray, why we fast, why we give. So you want to be happy? Don't live a compartmentalized life. You want to be happy? Live a life of integrity that will bless you and bless other people. And the word integrity is where we get the term integer, integrated. You want to be happy? Live an integrated life, a pure life. That means be a whole number, not a fraction, not a decimal. Integrity means I'm authentic, I'm real, I'm consistent, I'm not a fake, I'm not a phony, I'm not a self-righteous Pharisee. So the most miserable people in the world are those who don't know who they are and don't know why they are. You want to be happier? Emphasize integrity over image. Emphasize private devotion over public performance. And keep your vows. Be pure, be faithful. You want to be unhappy? You want to make everyone in your life unhappy and miserable? (laughs) Make a vow to your spouse and break it. Make a promise to your children and break it. You'll be unhappy? Number one cause of divorce? Make a promise to the bank and break it. So going back to Psalm, Psalm 24, we have here a portrait of the pure. In verse 3, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? That's what we're talking about. Those who are pure are going to see God, are going to be in the presence of God. Who's going to, be in the pre- who's going to ascend the hill of the Lord? Who's going to stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart. Those who have a pure heart will see God. Who is that? Who are the pure? Those who have not lifted up their soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. Those who seek him. Those who seek his face. That's who is pure. Pure means I have nothing to do with falsehood. That's deceit. Deceit means willing two things instead of one. Willing multiple things instead of seeking the face of the Lord. This one thing she hath chosen. She has chosen the good part. That's essentially what James taught in James chapter 4. We talked about you adulterers and adulteresses. You're impure, you're unfaithful. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Got to have clean hands and a pure heart. It's exactly the terms in Psalm chapter 24. Clean hands, pure heart. And who needs that? Those who are double-minded. And who are the double-minded? Those who will two things and not one. Those whose heart is divided between God and the world. God and money, Matthew chapter 6. And so the goal of being pure is seeing God. Being in the presence of God, Hebrews 12, 14 tells us, pursue holiness without which no man can see God. How do we do that? How do I overcome the tendency, the temptation to be half-hearted and lukewarm, to have a divided heart? I have to counter the promise of sin in the moment with the superior promise of God, of seeing God. I have to recognize and appreciate that being in the presence of God, ascending the hill of the Lord, seeing Him as He is, is the greater high, is the greater experience. That's how I overcome the temptation to sin and have a divided heart and impure motives in the moment. Be real, be honest, be faithful, do your best, and you will be blessed. Blessed 
are the peacemakers. Restoring conflict, resolving conflict, restoring relationships will bring God's blessing and will bring great joy into your life. Unresolved conflict, unrestored relationships will make you miserable physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, more than we even realize. Ulcers, heart attack, stroke. The word for bitter in the Bible literally means poison. Doesn't matter how rich, how powerful, how famous you are, you will not be happy with unresolved conflict and unrestored relationships. You'll be rich and powerful and notorious with nothing. So Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 23 and 24, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You can't be wrong with others and right with God. That's essentially what Peter writes about marriage in 1 Peter chapter 3. A peacemaker, emphasis on maker, take initiative. Quit worrying about who was wrong first, who is wrong most, and focus and worry about the relationship, the person what life would be like without that relationship. Maybe with your spouse, no children. Focus on the relationship. Focus on the person. And so many of these issues will become small, will become trivial. Attack the problem, not the person. If you're offensive, they'll be defensive. If you're defensive, that triggers them to be offensive. Conflict may have been accidental, but the resolution has to be Intentional. And notice here, children resemble their father, for they shall be called sons or children of God. Our God is a peace-loving, peacemaking God of peace. Through the Spirit, the proof that we're a child of God, that we have the Spirit in our life, love, joy, peace. And note the promise of sonship later in verses 43 through 47. Love your enemies, do good, bless, pray for your enemies. Why? that you may be the sons of your father. Why? Because he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. God provides general providence for all people, even those in their unbelief and their hate. And if we're going to be a child of God, we must do the same. Pray, bless, do good. That's how you overcome enmity. That's how God overcame enmity with us. And note, before we move on, righteousness must never be compromised in the name of peace. James said, first peaceable, first pure, then peaceable. That's the same order of the Beatitudes. Pure, then a peacemaker. Purity takes precedence and is the basis of peace. There is no peace without the purity. No peace with God, no peace with each other. Build bridges, not barriers, and you will find peace. Blessedness. So finally, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why in the world? Why in the world would we be persecuted? If righteousness is defined as peacemaking, purity, extending mercy, why in the world would we ever be persecuted and opposed for that? That's exactly what happened to Jesus. Luke 16 is a great example of that. He frequently taught on money. And he taught on money there. He gave parables on money. And it says those who opposed him, those who were to kill him and persecute him did so because they were lovers of money. And they were those who justified themselves before men. Persecution is the result 
of a love for something that's untrue, that's wrong, that's sinful, and the need to justify that love. And if you live with these, in these ways and these qualities, godly in an ungodly world, you will convict an ungodly world and invite opposition into your life. How do we respond to that? I think that's the context of 1 Peter. We're going to study that in our series on 1 Peter. Briefly, make sure you're persecuted, you're opposed for righteousness' sake, for the Son of Man's sake. That's what Peter says. That's what Jesus says. They revile you falsely. If you're an ignorant, arrogant, belligerent jerk, they're not reviling your name falsely. (laughs) You're getting what you deserve. Don't be surprised. Often we give an improper response and reaction because we're in shock. Don't be surprised. Don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid. Don't think you're the only ones going through it. No one knows the trouble I feel. Quit doing that. Don't retaliate. Jesus, like a lamb led before, a lamb to slaughter. Don't retaliate. And he says, don't quit doing good. And that goes so far beyond just don't retaliate. And why are we blessed in that? How can we rejoice in that? He says, leap for joy. That seems sick. We're commanded to be glad and rejoice in suffering and persecution. How in the world is that possible? Because the reward of heaven will more than compensate. Jesus wants us to desire the riches of heaven more than the riches of this earth. And that joy is rooted and anchored not only in what's coming to us in the future, but what's happening to us right now what that's doing for us right now, deepening, strengthening, refining our faith, our hope, and love. And that growth, that endurance through it all on the other side proves and testifies that it wasn't fake, it wasn't phony, it wasn't hypocritical, it wasn't self-reliant, it wasn't self-righteous. Our faith was genuine. And that faith strengthens our hope our expectation that we will receive the reward of Jesus. And that joy, treasuring the reward of heaven, the faith that leads to the hope results in the ability to love, to rejoice, to pray, to bless, to do good, even in the midst of persecution. Respond with the blessing and you will live and have a blessed life. Jesus in life and death epitomized these values. And what was the point? What was the goal? These paradoxes. Verse 13, why are we to be a paradox? Why are we to stand out? Why are we to be different? Because you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The goal was to get his disciples to live in such a way that would bring attention to the contrast, to the paradox, to bring glory to God so others could see the value of God. And notice how he ends the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Essentially, he says, you want to be happy, you want to be blessed, hear and heed my sayings. These aren't optional. These aren't suggestions. This is not a path, this is the path to eternal blessedness and eternal happiness. You want to be blessed? You want to be happy? You want to stand and not fall before God and the judgment? This is how. And notice in Luke's account, 
of the Beatitudes in Luke chapter 6, the word now. You weep now, you hunger now, it's temporary. And then notice he adds the woes. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. You've already got your reward. I think about the rich man and Lazarus, this great reversal. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger, the rich full. Eat, drink, and be merry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he's not condemning all laughter. We're not to act like our Christianity hurts us. We've talked about that. He commands us to rejoice. He commands us to leap for joy. There is laughter. There is joy. But don't be frivolous. Don't be trivial. Don't think everything's a joke or a game. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Woe to you when men speak well of you, when you seek the praise of men, so the praise of God, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. And notice here again, present tense, future tense. Present assurance, future promises. In some sense, the kingdom is present. The disciples now, theirs is, but the full blessedness won't be realized until later. They shall. We enjoy foretaste of it now, but the full experience is yet to come. And this is what the kingdom brings. Look back at the list. Ownership, comfort, inheritance, satisfaction, mercy, present, and adoption. You don't have to pick and choose among these promises. They're not a buffet. They all belong to the kingdom. So as Jesus says, how very blessed, how very fortunate, how supremely happy are those who are like this. And in this teaching, implicitly, there's an invitation. For those who aren't to become this type of person. Think about who was in the crowd. The blessings were promised to the disciples. Celebration of those who are and an invitation to those who aren't. And if you want these blessings, you have to be born again in the kingdom of heaven. That's where these blessings are found. Except the man be born of water and the spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Believe, repent, be baptized, and these blessings are yours forever. Maybe as a Christian, you need to re-enter or recommit to the kingdom and this upside down kingdom and, and implement these paradoxes that you know and have tasted previously are true into your life. If you have a spiritual need tonight, the blessings, the happiness, the solution starts with poverty of spirit, mourning, repenting of sin, meekness and humility that says not, God, I thank you, I'm not like, (laughs) but won't lift up their eyes, praying, Father, forgive me for I'm a sinner. If you are seeking these blessings, if you're seeking to be happier, if you're seeking a joy that lasts, contrast to the world's concept of happiness, hap, chance, circumstantial, up and down, joy that can't be taken away from you. It's found in the kingdom of heaven. And the one who made it possible to enter and live in that kingdom, describing himself as meek and lowly, invites you to come. Come unto me and I will give you rest. Rest, joy, hope, salvation for your soul. Joy inexpressible and glorious. If you need to respond to that invitation, he invites you to come. Please have a seat on the front as we stand and sing together.